0: Well, good morning. It is good to see you. I just wanted—sorry—I'm coming down here. Feels like we should be closer together. Um, what you didn't see that was happening during the beginning of the service is like the sound wasn't working, and everybody was so cool about it. Like there were all the tech people just quietly panicking and unplugging things as we're standing here and we're reading and singing, and they're just freaking out. And so, good job for all of the tech individuals. Well done. Um, I was thinking about the preparation of this sermon, and I was thinking about history, and history of the church, and history of my family, and I was thinking about um, the fact that I took recently one of those DNA tests, so I just willingly handed over all the DNA of the government, and I'm being tracked now, and I don't okay. care. Um, but, so I took one of those DNA tests, you know, you can do like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. Have any of you done this? Yes? Um, so I took one of those, and it's gross to how you have to do it, and it's like morning time, so, but you have to s- like spit a lot, you've spit a lot in this vial and it's like a surprising amount of spit. So you're just really going at it, you're spitting, and then you send it away and then he comes back and I was just really excited to get the results. And you looking at me know the results. Like you know exactly what my DNA test, it said, just white, you're just a white guy, right? It was just like broad, it actually said broadly European. It wasn't even like, oh, cool, I have like Scottish people. It was just like, here's kind of a red circle over most of Europe, and that's where you came from, and nothing surprising, so congratulations. Um, So, then, what was interesting, though, is that I had like all, I have like five or six hundred different, uh, you know, cousins, like half cousins, third cousins, cousins 20,000 times removed. And so it has been fairly interesting to like go in and look at and see what it was. A recent study out of MIT said that one in 25 people uh, in the world have done one of these DNA tests and that that number is doubling every single year. So, for those of you that did not raise your hand at the beginning, the tide is coming. You might as well just give in and ask for it for Christmas. Um, but it's, there's something in us, right? There's something deep in us that really wants to know our history and our lineage. And why is that? When we really stop and think about it, why do we do that? What does it matter? The truth is, is that throughout all of history, people have sought to understand their roots. Even in the life of Jesus, we see that there is an extensive lineage in Luke 3 that takes us from God to Adam to Joseph to Jesus himself. We know, of course, that Jesus wasn't any more or less Jesus because of this lineage, but they put this lineage in Scripture because there is something that somehow establishes Jesus' credibility even more by knowing this big, long, extensive history and knowing that he is the rightful heir to the throne of David. Such is the case with us. We seek to know our history and who we are as a people because somehow it lends validity and purpose to our present. It's true, we find out, right, if we look at our history, and we trace our family tree and we see that, like, our great 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 aunt Lucy was the first female lawyer in our state. There is something about her story that attaches itself to us, and we glean some of her prestige, and moreover, we, too, feel as though we are a person who wants to shatter boundaries and fight for what's right, all because our great-great-great-aunt Lucy did, and she passes that down through the ages. Furthermore, we do this as a church, is this congregation, over and over again, we talk about the story of our history. It's just part of the way we talk, right? How many times have we talked about, oh, how we got this building, and then we moved from this place to this place, and we tell our story as a church and why this church was founded, and we do this because there is a part of it that just harkens back to Hebrews 11, where we see that by faith, God is writing this church's history, even as we sit here in the present. Now, again, does knowing our church's history do anything practically for us today? No, it doesn't really, because it's all in the past. But in our collective consciousness, it gives us hope for what's possible, and it drives us to the future. Our ancestry personally and as a body of believers is what we're going to be talking about today, because today is freedom sunday actually this is the there have been 18000 churches around the globe that have celebrated freedom sunday and this is the last church and so it is really a privilege to be able to close freedom sunday with you today and it is not just a historic day in our church but it is a historic day in the church Freedom Sunday is a day where our congregation with congregations all around the world learn about slavery and learn about the work of International Justice Mission IJM. I'm a part of the IJM staff and a part of this congregation, so it is a privilege to share that work in this place with you today. Just briefly, here's what IJM is. IJM is as an organization that has a plan to eliminate the slave trade everywhere. You see, And you may not know this, but every single day, people are sold into slavery, and slave owners profit from their misery. According to the Walk Free Foundation and the International Labor Organization, there are over 40 million people in the world who live as slaves. That's 40 million little boys and little girls and whole families, all of whom are not free. IJM consists of around 900 Christian lawyers, criminal investigators, trauma social workers, pastors, graphic designers, really almost every single job that you can think of. And we work in 19 different communities throughout Africa, Latin America, South and Southeast Asia. And the work that God is doing through IJM is changing the story of individuals as well as whole communities. For example... IJM did a project in the city of Cebu in the Philippines to combat sex trafficking of minors, and after five years of comprehensively working with stakeholders in the public justice system, independent auditors confirmed a 79% reduction in the number of minors in that industry. That kind of effect changes history. But what was even better than that was that the Philippine government, then seeing the success of this operation, then decided to distribute this work to all of its major metropolitan areas. And by really the grace of God, in just a decade or two, we are going to see the near eradication of that form of trafficking in the Philippines. This is incredible, and this is history-changing. In Cambodia, a country that used to be really considered ground zero for this kind of trafficking, there has been 15 years of intense collaboration between the church, the Cambodian leaders, the police, the courts, IJM, other NGOs, and we have worked together to make a dramatic change for Cambodia's children. In 2015, there was a study done that just was like, let's do an independent, honest study of what is happening and the prevalence of minors that are being sold into sex tourism, so children that are... 15 years and younger. That's what this study covered. And at one point in Cambodia's history, it was shown to be at least 15% of these children were a part of, of this just horrific trafficking industry. The study also showed that because of the work that all of these organizations were doing together, that industry was almost eradicated, and the new number was about one tenth of 1%. This is historic. And while there are certainly right, there are certainly problems and challenges still to face in Cambodia and the Philippines and all around the world, we have to acknowledge for a moment that there are thousands of girls and women who will never be abused in the first place because of the work that the church is doing around the globe. That's why this church is a part and a partner with IJM, and that's why we're a part of Freedom Sunday together. Because today, there are 40 million people in the world who desperately need rescue. And while we don't know their names, we know that God does. And God uses you, and God uses me, and God uses our church and the people of IJM to rescue his children, children like Foley. Watch this. So I don't always love showing this film because it's just like, it's just too much and it's too intense. But if we don't sit in the reality of what is happening in the world, we cannot understand the opportunity of what we get to be a part of as a church together. I was just on the shores of that lake in the end of July and I I was really left with a crushing question as I was sitting there, which is like, where is God? You know, because it's so hard to see this kind of intensity and this kind of brutal nature that you just have to ask yourself, where is God in the midst of this? The reality of it is God is extremely present and is all throughout the pages of Scripture. And so what we're going to do now (laughs) is I'm going to go through the entire Old Testament with you pretty quickly. Um, If you are new to church or you are new to the Bible and you're like, what? What? don't worry, I'm not going to make you open and flip around. We're just going to kind of do a survey and a look at what God has to say, because thankfully God is not quiet when it comes to violence and abuse of his children. The Bible tells us that when, at the very beginning, Genesis, the sin was unleashed into the world, and emerging from the chaos of sin is a specific penchant for humans to, have, to perpetuate violence on each other. We see this in the very beginning, right? Cain kills Abel, and then on and on and on until the time of Noah. And God is basically just seems fed up with it and just says that he's going to end the entire human story with a flood because humans on the earth, quote from Genesis 3, have filled the earth with violence. But ultimately, thankfully, because we're here today, God decides not the end of the human race, but he begins working his long-term plan to redeem all of creation through the reign of his son Jesus, who will personally establish a new heaven and a new earth until every tear is wiped away and there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. But in the meantime, now, the sin of violence consistently threatens to get out of control, this is why when the scriptures speak of the governing authorities, especially the just rulers, they do so from the perspective of one of the core, that one of the core responsibilities of the governing powers is to protect the vulnerable from the strong. This idea of ruler is, as protector is celebrated over and on, over and over again in the scriptures. For example, Psalm 72, Endow the king with justice, O God. May he defend the, poor, the cause of the poor give deliverance to the needy, and restrain the oppressor. Romans 13, the Apostle Paul says, There is no governing authority except from God, for the ruler bears the sword to punish those who are evil. Later, and in more recent literature, great theologians like Augustine and Aquinas and Luther and Calvin and Wesley and Bonhoeffer would disagree on almost everything, but they all agreed that the most basic purpose of the rulers is to restrain violence against the weak. But then, what if the rulers fail to do their job? What if the rulers fail to do their God-appointed job of restraining violence against the vulnerable? Or worse, what if the rulers are the people that are committing that violence? God's solution for this is then to introduce what's called the prophets. This is a person, a spokesperson, who will remind the ruler that they are accountable to what God is calling them to rule into account. This is the case of Egypt. Now we're going to do our Old Testament flyover, right? This is the case of Egypt. God raises up the prophet Moses to confront Pharaoh. And so when the ruler fails to do his job, God raises up a prophet to protect the vulnerable, and the Israelites are then rescued from the violence of slavery. We know, after reading this, that the story for the Israelites does not end there, and it is a desire to be a strong nation. They are continually asked and they request to be led by a king, but God warns them and says very, uh, very clearly, and he says this through the prophet Samuel, that putting a human on the throne will present serious problems, primarily that there will be idolatry and there will be injustice, and there will be all the things that happen when those two twin evils exist together. And so really the biblical story for the next 700 years, if you step back and look at it, is really hundreds and hundreds of years of terrible kings doing terrible things to people and using idolatry and injustice to perpetuate violence against the weak. And over and over and over again through those hundreds of years, there are prophets who come and bring those rulers back to their godly purpose. Even with King David, the beloved poet king, right? Things start out pretty good, but then he has to be confronted by the prophet Nathan because he was abusing his power to commit adultery and murder. Things, of course, then get even worse. We're continuing to, we're flying pretty quickly now. The book of First and Second Kings is about Solomon and 40 other kings of Israel and Judah who lead with idolatry and injustice. And then there are hundreds of prophets who confront the rulers for shedding innocent blood. This continues as to be the basic storyline throughout the Bible. Prophets confronting rulers for their failure to do their God-given job of stopping violence. By way of example, and we're just going to go really quick through these, Isaiah confronts the king of Israel because their hands are stained with blood. Jeremiah confronts the kings of Israel and Babylon because their clothes are soaked with the lifeblood of the innocent poor. Ezekiel, Hosea calls King Jeroboam to account because under his rule there is only lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. Amos and Obadiah, Micah calls out the rulers of Judah because the rich people are violent and their judges are asking for bribes and they are perverting justice. Nahum, Nehemiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah tells the deputies of the king who want to talk about the religious fasting that what really matters is whether they administer justice. And finally, we're done with the Old Testament. We get to the prophetic ministry of the rulers that continues into the New Testament and into John the Baptist who calls the people to repentance, and he specifically names these three people, the tax collectors who are robbing people, the soldiers who are extorting money from people, and King Herod who is stealing another man's wife. All of the rulers are abusing the power that God has given them. And then, of course, the climatic story of the New Testament, as well as all of history, is Jesus' own crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. Indeed, the centerpiece of history is the sin of violence and the complicity of government rulers in that violence, which brings us back to us. It brings us back to this congregation. God has spoken throughout the entirety of the scriptures, awakening his people to the injustices of the world. From Genesis to Revelation to today, God is calling us, his children, the church, Christians, to rise up against those who would perpetuate violence. You are are the direct heirs to the prophets and the scriptures. Your ancestors, all of those men and women who went before you and boldly proclaimed that God's justice would be for all people, they are the ancestry of this church. And now you sit here as a direct descendant of the biblical prophets with a question in front of you. Will you stand for the 40 million people who need an advocate? Will you use your power on behalf of the vulnerable? Because here's what it can look like when we, the church, stand up and really understand our prophetic call. Watch this. What we get to be a part of as supporters of IJM is life-saving and that's why, as a church, this work is so critical. Because at IJM, we have developed a unique model that at its simplest continues the biblical narrative of standing up, for the pow- standing up to the powerful for the sake of the vulnerable. But in truth, we can only do that work if the church leans into its history, its influence, its power, which is what Freedom Sunday is all about. Every day, truly we move closer to seeing an end to slavery in our lifetime and from the perspective of our prophetic ancestors this is precisely what happens when the church stands up to the stands up for the oppressed i want to issue a very specific challenge for us this morning and that is a challenge for us to make history i want us to challenge us i want to challenge us as a church to stand up to the powerful of the world who prey on the innocent and specifically join with ijm in the fight against injustice from people we are waiting and hoping and knowing that this church together will make people free from slavery, from oppression, and from violence. We will know that this will allow people to be free to be children and men and women that God has created them to be. We can be a part of the solution and we can be a part of this miraculous transformation. And so here's what I am asking all of us to do this morning. Primarily, and this is actually primarily, I am asking us to pray. One of the great mysteries of the Christian faith is that somehow God is moved by the prayers and petitions of his people. We know that when we pray, things happen, and we see it happen. We saw it happen in that film. We saw that little boy Foley just have an extra measure of bravery not to hide, but to get out of the boat. We saw God bring up police officers who were sympathetic to the cause of slavery on the lake. We see God raising up people all around the globe who are putting an end to slavery, and this is happening because people are praying. And so you don't have to know the names of any of the 40 million, but I would ask you to fiercely commit to praying for them because it matters a great deal. The second thing I would ask you to do is to use your voice. We have unprecedented access through social media, through our networks, to tell people that there are slaves in the world. We don't have to give them all of the solutions of everything that they can do, but we can use our voice. So follow whatever, us, A21, there's all sorts of great organizations, follow them on social media and share what you have heard. A majority of this planet doesn't think that a single slave exists. The reality of it is, is we have a job to do to wake up the world to the reality of slavery. And the third thing that you can do (laughs) is to leverage your entire life, (laughs) right? If you can quit your job and come at work with us, come on. If you can give money, come on. Like, we need you to dig in deep and to be a part of this solution. There's more information on a table out there that I will probably make my way to unless I start running around with the kids and then I won't be there. But I'll be around and I would love to talk to you more about that. But in closing, I want you to consider this. The story that we heard is of just one person. It's the story of Foley. But more people than ever remain in slavery. And many of them are young children who just want to see their moms and dads, who just want to study, who just want to be kids, but they can't because they are owned by a human being. And the worst thing is that they live without hope. Like, that's the hardest part. <laughs> sorry, sorry, cry every time. <laughs> I preach this sermon a million times. Grab your time. These children live without hope. That's what we have an opportunity to give them today, is hope. Because they can't even fathom when they are standing there smoking fish or they are standing there like working in the lake. They can't even imagine that they'll ever get out of slavery. They actually believe that this is their life. But if they knew that somebody on the other side of the globe in a church in Gainesville actually cared about them, they may dare for just a moment to hope, to hope for a life that is better. We have the opportunity not just to end slavery, but to be light in the darkness all around the world. That's why the partnership with IJM matters, and I appreciate you letting me share with you a bit this morning. Let me pray. God, I am grateful that you are not silent when it comes to the prayers of your people. I am grateful that you are sending people through the work of IJM and a lot of different organizations and mostly through the church to end slavery around the world. I pray God that you give us wisdom and clarity as a church for how to lean into our calling and our calling is to stand up against those who are perpetrating violence against the poor. And I pray that you would give us the courage to take bold steps to do the things that you have asked us to do. I am grateful for this church and their heart and the willingness to be the kind of church that does not simply stand by idly and watch as things happen, but is a part of the solution. Lord, we love you and we are quite grateful, amen.